Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Domati Pongo. Domati is a journalist who hosts the MTV series True Life Crime, which is now all of the episodes from season one are available on MTV.com. Domati also hosts a segment for MTV News called Need to Know, where he talks to major changemakers, politicians like Stacey Abrams and musicians as well. He's been super active in the Black Lives Matters movement. And he hosts a show on the Smithsonian Channel called Conversations in Context. As if that weren't enough, he has his own multimedia consulting firm, and he is just a rising mogul on all fronts. It was my honor and pleasure to speak with him. We get into some really interesting conversations about a series that he did on Martin Luther King Jr., one of his true life crime episodes that took place in his hometown of Chicago. We get into Black Lives Matters and, and our industry. So it's really, uh, I, I feel very lucky to have found him and to have had an in-depth conversation with him. So I hope you enjoy. Domati, thank you so much for being here. I am truly honored on a Saturday, no less. Yes, Aliza, it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is such an honor. So I should start by saying how I found out about you, and I can't believe I didn't know about you, but that's probably just shows how old I am. Um, you came up through my aunt, Karen, unfor- the unfortunately named Karen. Um, <laughs> she, <laughs> my white aunt Karen, poor Karen, because she like couldn't be more amazing. But she, her, she just texted me. She's never suggested a guest in my four years of doing this. And I guess she had seen you on a panel or something for Black Lives Matter. And she said, you need to research this guy and you need to get him on your podcast. So I started deep diving on you. And, and, you know, a lot of times when people suggest somebody, it has nothing to do with what I do, you know, and it's usually like, that's not actually what my podcast is. And it turns out, hello, you are amongst a million things that we'll get into. You're also hosting a true crime documentary series. So I mean, you're right in my sweet spot. I was just like, I need to meet this man. Oh, that is an honor. Shout out to Aunt Karen. And it's, uh, <laughs> man, that's, it's, it's a testament to how, how crazy this business is and how blessed I have been to have opportunities to kind of spread my wings in different, different spheres because she didn't, like, you know, it's a reality show, but she didn't hear about me from reality. So that's, that's crazy. And I'm honored, man. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thanks. And that, yeah, like you said, that just shows how what tentacles you have in so many things, which we'll get into. But I actually want to start at the beginning because I Mm. think your trajectory, I hate that word because I always say it wrong, your journey, (laughs) which is worse, (laughs) in a very small amount of time, because you're still very young, has been pretty remarkable. So you grew up in the south side of Chicago and you started kind of as a rapper MC, right? So let's take us back to the beginning and we'll walk through your your earlier years because I'm super curious about you. Oh, man. I um I was one of those kids who followed my big sister around everywhere. My big sister, Nunya, was a rapper. She was a hip hop head and she was 10 years my senior. So I was listening to very intricate lyricism at a very young age and tried to rap myself. And you know, I come from an immigrant family. I'm a first gen Ghanaian American. And so, you know, when I tell my family I want to be a rapper, they look at me like, OK, you're insane. That's not going to happen. So I go to school, I study economics and I end up getting a job at Target headquarters as a business analyst immediately after school, uh, after college. And um, I feel like 
I feel like I'm just running a rat race and not living out my purpose. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to quit. And so I quit without really much of a plan and moved back to Chicago in my parents' home and found my way in some crazy string of events in in the radio business, which wasn't hip hop, but I was like, okay, this will do. And then I found out that the lyricism that I learned from hip hop, the storytelling, the ability to communicate your feelings and speak to issues that are passionate to you, those ended up informing what I'd become as a journalist. And that's kind of the super condensed version, but yeah, that's how I kind of fell into journalism. My first job was at a black owned radio station called WVON South Side of Chicago. And uh, from there, it just opened up other doors. So that was pretty impressive, too, reading your bio, because it wasn't just your first job, but you also became the news director, which, like, I thought you had to kind of work your way up and you just took over the place. So, uh, Aliza, this is the funny thing about titles, though. You know, I mean, news director at that station meant something different than it might mean if you're working at TV or at a big radio station. But, yeah, it, it did happen quickly because crazy thing. I started as an intern at this station. The day I started, the previous news anchor or news director, rather, put in his two week notice. And so I came home, told my mom, yo, the news news anchor quit. And she said, you should apply. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. She was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can, I guess. And so I ended up uh, putting together a, um, a, a reel, a tape and sending it in. And they said, well, you're not horrible. You know, yeah, like I learned some things from, you know, how to voice control, how to enunciate, all of those different rudimentary things that rap kind of tells you that works for journalism or broadcasting rather. And, um, you know, so I became news anchor. And then after three months, I kind of didn't have a news director. The news department didn't really have a direction or a vision. And we were coming up on December, the end of the year programming. And they needed someone to write the one hour special that WVON does every year, culminating all these big events. And so at that point I wrote it and then I just said, yo, I would like to be in charge of the vision for the news department. And it was like, all right. But, and so that's how it happened so quickly, but it was all, yeah, very quick, very haphazard. But me being news director there meant I was in charge of myself and one other anchor. It wasn't like a big team, but I learned a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's part of, I was just talking about this on another, I was a guest on a podcast this morning. We were talking about being able to be that big fish in a small pond. You get to do so much more than just being, like you said, in the target world, you know, some of these big companies, you're just sort of a cog in the wheel. Maybe the money's better, but it takes forever to work your way up. And here you get to write an hour special within a few weeks of being on staff. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's what that ended up being such a blessing to me, too, because um, I I had because I have this title, I could then reach out to so many other journalists as mentors. And so I remember one of my mentors, I asked, does it make sense to go get my master's in journalism? Because I, I felt imposter syndrome. I felt like I'd been there. I'd gotten to the space far too quickly. And And she said, what you're doing is what people who come out with graduate degrees wish they were able to do. She was like, what you need to do is make sure that you're... Bio-. She recommended all the books that I need to... Bill Kovac's book, uh, The Elements of Journalism, uh, Murder in the News by uh, Bob Jordan. I-, I went and just studied and studied and treated it like grad school. And then I I would... Uh, when I interviewed subjects, I would... Uh, I actually started a podcast where I would interview other journalists and, you know, they thought they were being a guest on my show, but I was really picking their brain to figure out how to do this thing and do this thing well. I love hearing this. So you ultimately left there. You went to WGN, which is a huge radio station in Chicago. Yeah. And I was really impressed to see this. You wrote and edited a three-part series about Dr. King's 
assassination called mm-hmm. From the Mountaintop, The Legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Was yeah. that your idea? How did that come about? And what was your biggest takeaway from researching and writing that? Oh, that's a great question. I rarely ever get to talk about this, Elise. I appreciate that. That was... um. We were coming up on the 50th anniversary of King's assassination. And there was another news anchor um, who, again, I'd always put myself in a position to be everyone's mentee, little brother. And, they, you know, they would always joke and say, we're only borrowing you for a little bit of time. You're going to move on from here. And I thought folks were just being nice. But, you know, they saw something in me, I guess. And um, one of those anchors was Ryan and uh, Ryan Burrow. Uh, said, hey, listen, you know, we're coming upon 50 years of, uh, of King's assassination and doing a lot of things in Memphis. I would love to travel with you because I want to do a story about this. But I was the only African-American anchor at, at the station. Or the, there were two others, but I was the, the one most positioned to tell this story. And so he actually pitched uh, to, to our news director for me to go down with him and help cover this story about, you know, the, the modern right fight for, for, you know, labor unions and, and labor laws, because that's what King was actually down in Memphis fighting for when he was assassinated. And then also this uh, stringing what happened then to civil rights today. And he knew I had a relationship with Jesse Jackson and Rainbow Coalition already. We interviewed Jesse Jackson about the day King died. And it was uh, a three-part series. I wrote three parts, and then Ryan actually wrote another three parts, and we ended up winning uh, an Associated Broadcast, Associated Press Award uh, from the Illinois uh, Broadcast Association uh, for that piece. And simultaneously, I wrote articles about that experience for the Chicago Sun-Times. It was my first time writing for print. And so it was a grueling weekend, but it all came together because actually a white ally said that I have this opportunity to tell this story, but I think that you're better suited to tell it. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to help you figure out how to tell it. And, and you know, I, I know we'll probably get to those things a little later on, but it, it was a great example of what allyship looks like and what opening the doors looks like, what diversity and inclusion actually looks like. And it, it came out to be a beautiful piece. I love that story. And I think people don't realize also what a skill it is to be able to write for a podcast or a a radio series and a newspaper article. Very different types of writing as well. So kudos to you for even pulling that off. Oh, it was hard as hell because it was <laughs> it was a totally different thing. And, uh, it, it, you know, there's something to be said about serendipity and just saying yes. I remember one of uh, when I went to broadcasting school, there was one speaker that came to talk to us. And, he, you know, they, they said, you know, what's a tip that you give to folks? He said, say yes and figure it out later. So before I knew <laughs> I couldn't write for print, I just said yes, because the Chicago sometimes had been downsizing, you know, newspapers, as you know, cutting budgets, and they didn't have any reporters that they were sending down there, but they had a partnership with WGN Radio. And so they said, well, your reporters are going down there. Would Domitee like to write this article? And, you know, I, I said yes before I knew what to do. Come to find out the managing editor at the station, Kathy Cheney, previously worked at WVON. So she and I had been colleagues. And so I said, Kathy, my first time writing for print, you know, what, what should I think about? What should I do? And she talked to me about the level of detail that goes into print writing versus, you know, broadcast. And even when I'm writing for broadcast, when I'm writing documentaries, I write bullet point points. You know, I often kind of freestyle. You know, I know the information. I write bullet points. And she's like, no, you have to really drill down and, and piece together everything you want to say. So I couldn't even take my script for broadcast and just put it in print and to adapt it all together. And she worked and edited that piece and made me sound like a consummate print journalist, uh, which, <laughs> which I was not, but, uh, it was a great piece nonetheless. Super impressive. So I know this is kind of a loaded question, but yeah. in all of that reporting, 
if you had to pinpoint one biggest takeaway from MLK, whether it was something that you had never known that you found out or just sort of like a general mantra or feeling that you take with you every day, what would you say was your biggest takeaway from doing that? Mm. My biggest one was the thing that I did not know was how much King's family went through after he was killed. Like, obviously, you know, the family deals with this turmoil, but you wouldn't know that, you know, Bernice King gave um, one of one of the speeches at at the church from which he gave his final speech from the mountaintop. And she said after King had died, other family members were killed. She, uh, uh, her grandmother was uh, playing a piano at the church. This is in the Sun-Times article. I can't remember the details, so forgive me for not saying all of them because I can't remember it, but was playing a piano at a church and a stray bullet hit her right in the head and killed her at the church. And then she had an uncle who later passed away. These were stories I never knew. And, um, you know, I ended up including them in the, in the Sun-Times piece. And I never, you know, we know that Left behind Coretta, he left behind kids. You know, we, we know that his family had to deal with that, but I didn't really realize the, the reign of terror that, that, that would befall that family after King's death and how agents of, you know, the, the people who, you know, frankly, who killed Dr. King, not only wanted to kill him, they wanted to kill his message and anyone who wanted to carry it on and scare people close to King uh, away from wanting to pick up that mantle. You know, I mean, Megger Evers was killed and all, so many people. And um, I think I didn't really realize how much had happened in real time and how terrorizing that might have been to, to some of the people closest to King. That, that was probably my biggest takeaway. I can't even imagine. I mean, you have the trauma of him as a family member. You have the trauma of dealing with the loss of him and then you have the daily trauma of being terrorized, it sounds like that's a nightmare. It, it, it really was. And, and it goes to how we're yeah. taught. It, it goes to a lot of what we're taught about um, the civil rights movement. It's like, you know, King marched, Voting Rights Act, Kumbaya, everything was cool. But it informs what happens today because, you know, I don't think we realize how concerted those efforts are to really stifle um, progressive movements. And it really sobered me up and made me more intentional about the stories that I tell. You know, I, I've been covering cases like the shooting of Lacan McDonald, the 17-year-old who was killed by police in Chicago, shot 16 times. And I had been covering these things, but I, I, I frankly, I wasn't aware that how many of my activist friends might have been in grave danger by being so involved and entrenched in these things until I went back and looked at what that danger really felt like. And this is jumping ahead a bit, but as someone mm-hmm. now who's so entrenched in activism and visible, do you ever feel threatened? And do you experience that as well? I I don't. I don't. I often feel supported. Uh, you know, work, working at a place like MTV News, I, I just feel like um, I, I've been fortunate to be able to work at mainstream outlets that kind of give you a bit of a cover. If that makes sense, uh, it, it kind of a, it's almost a privilege that I have working at, frankly, white outlets. But if I was an independent journalist, it might be different. You know, if I was, you know, uh, say Brandon Smith, I have a friend, Brandon Smith. He was the one who submitted one of the FOIA requests that helped to release, release information about what happened to Laquan McDonald. And we only text on apps that allow our messages to be encrypted. And 
I don't really think about that when I'm sourcing stories and things like that. But he lives in more of a covert, clandestine atmosphere that I have been able to escape from because of the nature of the outlets for which I write. And so I think that my, you know, kind of, I don't know, I just I just don't feel it. And I kind of feel like a small fry sometimes, Elise. I'm like, you know, I, I'm all right. Ain't nobody checking for me. You know, I'm, I'm just telling my little stories. <laughs> there are people who are really, really on the front lines for whom I'm more concerned about. But as far as, far as me, I'm, I'm all right. Well, that's good. And that is actually a perfect transition to MTV. So how did you end up with um, the gig at True at the True Life? Um, so MTV's had a, a longstanding doc series, which is one of the best, if not the best, for years and years, True Life, and then kind of spun it off into crime, sort of under the catfish banner. Did you end up hosting that first and then sort of transition into MTV News? Like what came first and how did it come about? You, you, you hit the, you, you, that's how I know you're an insider, Lisa. That's exactly how it happened. It was, uh. I need to know the deets, okay? Yes, yes. <laughs> no, nah, that's exactly, and, and, and I can talk shop, so I'll go, I'll go into as much detail as, as it's cool with you. Um, in, uh, 2018, um, I got approached to, I got a, ca- a casting call, I got approached to host an episode about what happened to Kanika uh-huh. Jenkins. And Kanika Jenkins was a 19-year-old girl who walked into a walk-in freezer and froze to death. And people suspected foul play. And when they were sourcing who might be good for this for this show, uh, the producers and the casting directors, they had talked to so many different people. And a lot of them recommended me. They said, you know, well, if, it, if it's anybody who fits that MTV age group, who is also entrenched in the work of actually of actual journalism, you know, not someone who just wants to host a show to say they host an MTV show, you know, Doma T might be a good fit. And, you know, I talked to them about it and. I ended up, to, to my surprise, I didn't even think that I was going to get selected. You know, they asked me what I thought about the case. And because of the history of police cover-ups in Chicago, I was I was one of those that was like, no, there was definitely something foul. There was some foul play. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting selected to shoot the documentary. We shot it over the span of a few weeks. And then I didn't hear anything from MTV for several months. And then they circled back and they have this MTV News digital job that come that came about. And that was, you know, I didn't start that job until the end of 2018, until like December. So, I mean, we're talking shooting in February and then not hearing back until December. And then not knowing that True Life Crime had gotten greenlit until February of the following year. So it was... Yeah, nothing lot. about this is unusual. I know to normal human beings, this sounds crazy. This is completely typical. Some might say almost yes. very fast in our business. And so. I bet, yeah, yeah, no, right, exactly. But for <laughs> right? me, like that's all know, the time it took. What? Right, that was it. That's all it took. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was it, for me. In the meantime, like after I shot the documentary, you know, I, it was just a, it was a, an arable pilot. So. You know, they might pick it up, they might not, but I got paid. But then I had to go back to working at WGN and I had this really top secret MTV project I just finished. But I have to go back to my, you know, regular radio salary <laughs> and and figure out what I'm going to do next and what growth looks like for me. And when the when my agent called me and told me that the MTV News digital job came out, um, I was ecstatic. I ended up moving to New York. I got a call Monday that I got the job and then I was in New York by Thursday and I hadn't moved back to Chicago since. It's been two years, almost two years later. Oh, wow. So you're in New York right now? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole other thing. All right. So let's stay. Uh, I have to keep yeah, myself yeah. on track here because I have like a million questions about New York, but it doesn't matter. So um, <laughs> so 
One of the things that I read, I think, in your bio, which I really liked, is that, you know, this isn't just sort of like your straight ahead true crime series. This is and why I think you connect to it so well is that each story um, and they're not just black stories or white stories. They're all types of stories. But the connective tissue is marginalized communities or marginalized people and marginalized communities. So was that something that was important to you to bring to the table? Was that baked into the concept? Like because obviously that something that was important to you in your career before this? Yeah, great question. It was, uh, I think it was a mixture of the two. I think that element was already kind of baked into the concept because True Life wanted to speak to the youth, young generation, crimes that had happened to young people involved young people. And when something as tragic as that happens to someone young, there has to be external factors that led to this. And when the, when, you know, I worked on Left with Left Right for that first Kanika episode, and the, the producers and directors there were like, listen, the story is about Kanika Jenkins, but there's a deeper story as to why people believe there's a conspiracy theory. And I was so passionate about making sure that that thread was a part of the episode. Uh, the producers at MTV were uh, amenable to that, too. They wanted to make sure that that was a part of it. But I think my passion also influenced making that a thread throughout the rest of the season once they decided to greenlight it. And, you know, with each episode... You got the story about Junior, which allows us to talk about gang violence, who was the kid stabbed in the Bronx. And you got the story about Jerrica Binks, a young, beautiful white girl who had struggled, unfortunately, with drug addiction and was in an abusive relationship. But we had to talk about she, you know, went missing while running. And we talked about the crimes that tend to happen to women when they're out exercising and what does gendered violence look like. And so, you know, it. Just my passion mixed with the producer's intent to make sure that like youth perspectives were heard ended up creating this new this new uh, spin on an old genre where we're not just talking about the case and we're not just digging into these issues. But what can we learn about society uh, based on what's happened to these people? And that's what makes it most fulfilling for me, honestly, like that's. That has been something I'm very, very lucky to have, because even as we were doing the show, at least I was like. I was looking at other documentaries and trying to see what the templates are like. Cause like I said, I'm a lifelong student and I couldn't find any other true crime shows that hit those beats. Couldn't find one with a host under 30. I couldn't find any with hosts that were persons of color. And I couldn't find any that built this thread between social commentary and just your hard nosed crime doc. And, you know, it was it was, was kind of difficult to figure out how to needle that thread or thread that needle. And um, but I, I, hopefully I think we hit the mark. I think so. Yeah, I've started watching the Kanika episode. And it's really I, I love the way it's done. And I and I and it is always hard when you're creating something new, like you said, with sort of pieces from other things, but blazing a new trail. I wonder, as a journalist, you know, a lot of these cases just from the episode descriptions, are sort of, you know, was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Uh, was it a murder? And it's sort of re-examining a lot of these suspicious cases. Did, during the course of filming the first season, were people DMing you with new evidence? Like, did you, did anything come up where the case took a right or left turn that you didn't expect? I was overwhelmed by how many internet sleuths would send me tips and leads and so much information. It was overwhelming. It was almost, it was too much because you can't include all of it in a 40 minute, uh, as much as you want to include. And then, and you know how TV works, you know, there's an arc and a flow that the story needs to have, uh, to, to, to make it watchable for, for mass viewers. Um, so we got a lot of tips, but 
what the, the case where I really saw the biggest breakthrough in real time was Jerrica Binks's case, which was the second episode. Jerrica Binks's case, we went, she was she had gone missing, no one had found her. She'd gone missing without a trace. The police had already concluded that her boyfriend didn't harm her, that they didn't really believe anything foul was at play, but the family believed that something had happened to her or someone killed her. And I remember leaving and talking with my team and saying like, yo, I don't know how we're really going to conclude this episode because we've ran through all the leads. We don't know where this is going. The body still isn't found. We're going to feel really, you know, unsatisfied at the end of this show. Like, what can we do? And we already had a shoot scheduled two weeks away from our previous shoot. And I had to go back to talk to her brother or something or a family member. And in that time, someone ended up finding her body um, far off in this remote area of this trail. And you had to hike for about 45 minutes to an hour to get to this remote area where her body was found. And so we ended up making that, you know, having that discovery in real time. That was like the biggest, the episode where we had the biggest discovery in real time. And then we went back and really had a chance to unpack the family's emotions in real time, which was crazy and, and kind of cathartic for myself and the family. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's that's the best thing when you can get some type of closure for a family. And that's that was actually my next question. Like, yeah. you know, I I've, I've done a lot of true crime and, and, you know, you get very caught up in the investigation and the evidence and all of the leads. And then at the at the core of it is the victim. Right. And the, and the right. people that are left behind. And I guess my question is, you know, it seems like you have a big heart. And is it hard to kind of separate yourself from all of that. I mean, like there's a, it's, you know, it can be dark. It can be sad. Like how do you mm-hmm. keep sort of that distance so that you could do your job and not like just, you know, cry yourself to sleep every night? Oh man. True, true life crime taught me a lot about myself, especially like as a, you know, as a male, I don't know if I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but men aren't really taught to really confront our emotions, you know? So I had never really worked through the tools to figure out. I didn't know what it felt like to come home and want to cry because you'd been doing these interviews all day. And I didn't really have any methods to unpack that. And so you can't really talk about the cases with folks who aren't, aren't really in the business or part of the show. A lot of it is, is, you know, top secret information. And, and so I found out that I had to find means of, uh, of unpacking these things. And I realized that that's why I was given the gift of knowing how to make music. That's why I became a rapper. It wasn't because I was supposed to, my purpose wasn't to make music necessarily even for the world. If folks enjoyed it, that was cool. But it was when I came home, I would just write verses. You know, I got my, my little notebook right here. I, don't, I know it's a podcast, they can't see it, but uh, I've got my Pongo journal where it's I write very all cool. my- very cool, very cool. Yeah, thank you. I, I, where I, I like write the light, my, is it a light bulb? Is that, yeah, is that a yeah. light bulb? Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, the logo very is cool. up. Wait, let me take a picture. To, Hold on, I'll yes. post it on. Okay, wait, I think I cut you off. Hold on. <laughs> Let's <laughs> get a good picture here. Okay, awesome. Love that. Yeah, and um, and, and my journal ended up being my my safe space. Those are where I write, you know, I, those are where I write my notes for the show. Um, you know, some folks watch the show and they see me with my journal and they think it's like a prop or right. No, this is really where I'm writing my notes and ideas for the show. How I keep my my track of my mind, and uh, it's where I write verses. You know, I write verses about about the families, about what I'm experiencing, about the the people involved, and um, that's that's what's what's helped me to decompress after the show. And then I watch mindless television. Like then I, (laughs) there you go. What do you watch? Let's let's get into it. How much dumb reality TV do you watch? I'm a love and hip hop guy. 
Oh, Love & Hip Hop New York. Um, Even uh, Ridiculousness on MTV, which comes on right after True Life Crime normally, which is, I always, I never liked that show. I shouldn't say that for MTV, but I never really liked it until I did True Life Crime. And I was like, oh, there's a space for this type of television. Um, So I know you said you were binging my podcast. I don't know if you you heard Shane Nickerson. He created the show um, with Rob. So that's a good episode to check out. Oh, I'm a ch- I missed that episode. Word. Yeah, check it out. It's fun. They talk about like how it all came to be. I got to check that out. Yeah, and and so I, I watch I watch shows that just allow me to take my mind completely off of it. And then sometimes I watch things that are dark also, but fictionalized that kind of help me get my mind. I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. Like uh, Power on Stars is one of my favorite shows. And so like throughout True Life Crime, come home and watch Power and it will take my mind away, but still keep me in that gritty ambiance, which I would kind of need to, you know, enact that that piece of myself to, to go out and shoot the next day. I love that. So part of um, so part of you hosting this show, do we say hosting? I mean, you're more than a host. You're like the mm. front man. I don't know. Part of you being the face of the show is that you've also transitioned into MTV News and uh, a segment that you're doing that's called Need to Know, and it's I guess it's a, yeah. a Twitter live show. So I love some yes. of the people just looking uh, through your social media. You've, you've interviewed some incredible people. Stacey Abrams yeah. is one of my personal heroes. What mm. did, I'm curious because my biggest fear for this election, other than everything, is mm. mobilizing young people who feel like nothing ever changes. You know, our vote doesn't really count. Everybody sucks on both sides, right? So... Stacey, obviously, this is like her mission is to get people to vote. What would you say? Because you're at the intersection, right? So Mm -hmm. Stacey plus young people, a 20 something demo that you're in and that you're reaching with your with your audience. Yeah. How do we do it? How do we convince these kids to vote? Man, that's the million dollar question. I'd be fronting. I'd be fronting if I pretended like I knew the answer to that <laughs> specifically. But I have a few theories that might work. I think the the main thing uh, is acknowledging how young people feel and exploring exactly why they feel that way. So even in that conversation with Stacey Abrams, I said, you know, what do you say to young people who voted for Obama and saw Trayvon Martin happen during his presidency? Or, you know, his DOJ, his Department of Justice at the time, you know, showed that there was a pattern and practice of uh, excessive use of police force in Chicago. Um, and But the Democratic mayor, in Chicago at the time, did nothing about it. So what, what, how do you, how are we not supposed to feel disillusioned? And I think the first step is acknowledging how the youth feel rather than just that finger wagging thing that, you know, some folks do. Other young people do it to each other too, where we're like, no, just vote. You know, people died for your right to vote, blah, blah, blah. All of that is true. But what we don't talk enough about is how you got to stay on these politicians after you vote. And so I think my message has been voting should be the default. Voting is obviously what we should do. It is the default. And then how do we mobilize afterward? And so communicating that Obama had less power in his first term because no one showed up in those midterm elections and he lost that majority. And local municipalities have much more power than the president. So how do we have you, you know, showing up every four years, but not showing up uh, at your city council meetings or not, you know, uh, being engaged on the small issues like school board meetings that matter to your community? 
pay attention to those things. Stay on top of those hashtags. You know, at the end of those hashtags, when it's like Black Lives Matter, and then you go to those resources and websites, we have to sign the petitions. Sign those petitions. Like, stay on it. And so that has been, I think that's the message for young people. First, acknowledge why they feel that way. And then tell them that part of voting is civic engagement after the fact. And, and stay on your politicians, your local elections. And then, um, and hopefully just educating folks uh, through my platforms to let them know what the issues are. You know, why why are people talking about defunding the police? You know, what what is it that we can do in lieu of defunding the police if that feels like something that feels far off for a lot of folks who advocate for that, which I'm indifferent to that. But uh, I do believe that in a lot of local municipalities, I know I'm going on and on. Let me stop right there. I'll stop right there. Let you. No, it's, it's a great point. And look, the counterpoint, yeah. I didn't mean to sound negative with my question because I think the encouraging No, it's a very things, positive question for sure. Well, I think the, the flip side of this, which gives me so much hope and excitement is the mobilization that happened during the protests and in, in the middle of the pandemic with Black Lives Matter. I mean, so many young people came out and it was so clean, you know, black and white and every other shade in between. And it was like, oh, wow, like they will save us. They do care. And I got really excited about that. And I, and I hope that there is a direct connection between that and actually knowing, like you said, it's not going to solve everything, but it will be a really good step in the right direction. It will be the beginning of a step. And obviously I'm biased as to what it means. And I, to me, there's no other choice but Democratic at this time. So, you know, when people say just vote, it's like, well, you know, just vote blue. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I do think, you know, that it, it is a beginning. So anyway, I just wanted to, to make sure that that we highlighted, you know, I'm sure. Look, you were you've been extremely vocal. Um, and obviously that's, again, how I heard about you. How encouraging was it for you as as the you know part of the youth to see like just how mobilized people were and are now? Oh, it it, it touched my heart because um you know you 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 thought that we'd become desensitized to seeing this type of brutality, and I didn't expect for what happened when George when I watched that video of George Floyd I actually couldn't watch it I watched only thirty seconds of it, which was weird for me because I've seen far more gruesome things hosting true life crime. I've seen some really crazy crime scene photos. Uh, but for some reason, maybe it was the weight of the pandemic, I really couldn't watch that. But I, I'd assume that the rest of the world was used to seeing black people brutalized on TV. Like there was so many videos of police shootings. And when folks mobilized and got out in those streets, I felt I was encouraged. I felt like I had my own marching orders. I felt like I I felt like what I did mattered. And a lot of my work, even when it's not directly related to civic engagement, my hope is that in shows like True Life Crime, we show that almost everything is political. And there's there's a reason that, you know, what happened to Kanika Jenkins uh, as a black woman who was found dead, why people didn't believe the police. And what they said when they said that death was an accident, even though that ended up being my conclusion as well. And yeah, or, or why didn't um, or, or how, uh, you know, another murder that, that happened on the show was uh, a trans kid and how violence against black trans people and trans people in general, too, um, is looked at. And so even my interviews with artists and who wins what award at the VMAs and how that's political and racialized and what genre people fit into. Uh, I hope that that thread all rolls into the fact that, yo, these 
issues of, of race and social justice are intertwined into everything from music to reality TV to showing up at the ballot box. And so I was encouraged because after what happened to George Floyd, we started to see radical changes across the spectrum from more diversity on TV shows, from the girl who voices a character on Big Mouth, an animated series, deciding to step down and letting the person of color take that show on. It, it was, and so it, I was encouraged on multiple fronts. You, every answer that you give is like the perfect transition to what I want to ask next. <laughs> it's like you're reading my mind because that was literally my next question, which is let's talk about our industry and let's talk about change. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I want to know on your MTV show how many people of color are behind the camera. Ooh, I'm so glad you asked that <laughs> uh, because I hate to put my company on blast, but let's do we it. had the conversation after George Floyd. I had on eight episodes of True Life Crime, I had one African-American AC. That was it. I was usually the only black person on set. And honestly, being transparent with you, too, um, as a black man in a new space, you know, got this new crime show, figuring out a lot of things, learning in real time, accomplished a lot, know a lot, all that good stuff, but I'm learning a lot. And being on set and having to communicate to folks with different lived experiences why an element of a story is important would be a lot easier if there was someone else who could also say, yes, that's why. I'll give one concrete example. We did a story on a Native American reservation, indigenous uh, reservation. And there was a, something as simple as a show schedule. They said, we're going to meet with the family in the morning and then we'll do the rest of the shoots throughout the day. I said, no, you want to meet with the family at the end. And she said, well, I was like, no, because first of all, the family members, it was the whole family, like 20 people. The family's going to come late and we're going to stay late because we're talking about something very emotional. And it, it's, it's just a different, culturally, I just know. You know, you want to put this at the end and we're going to look very rude if we leave early. And they're like, OK, cool. It was no argument or anything, but it was it was just that just that intuitiveness that you don't have if you don't have certain lived experiences. So I, I spoke to to the team and hopefully uh, True Life Crime uh, gets renewed. Hopefully it comes back around. And if it does, um, I've had talks with the team about, um, you know, what diversity might look like, but not only diversity for the sake of diversity, but how lived experiences will help make me a better host when I can volley ideas off of other folks from other backgrounds. And so, yeah, but you, you already know behind the scenes, not too many black folk, not too many Mexican folks or Hispanic folks or anything. You know, it's it, it's more than just a host. It's more than yes. just the front. You know, and I think that the more we can get, you know, more you can start producing and you bring up other black producers and then hopefully they rise up in the company or the network. And then there's yeah. other decision makers like that's where the real change, in my opinion, that's where the real yes. change is going to happen. That's absolutely right. And oh, and, and I was I was wrong. There was a, another African-American showrunner. I forgot for the first episode of the Kanika oh, Jenkins story. Uh, my man, Jay Griff. And so uh, and, and Jay uh, was was very instrumental in making sure that uh, first, you know, he was, like you said, clicked with the family very well, uh, but he was from New York and I was explaining like Chicago culture to him and he just got it. And it was real quick. He was like, okay, cool. This is how we're going to do this because of this. And you're right. And I do want to say this for the companies too. I don't think they go out and say, no, we're only going to hire people that look like us. But as you know, referrals are everything in this industry. And Often we just live in our silos. You know, we don't even actively know our friend groups look like they do until we look around and realize that some folks are missing from certain backgrounds. And so this DP 
hollers at this AC and then he gets a job shooting on the show and then he has a friend who wants to be a PA and they're on the show and now you now there's no yeah. black people on set. And so yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I was just talking about this this morning. I mean, I, I when Black Lives Matter movement came out during the pandemic again, mm-hmm. I looked at my just my podcast, which is a super small part of what I do. And, you know, I did at that point, I'd done over 100 podcasts. I'm like, OK, let me count how many. You know, it was something that I always was conscious of, but not conscious enough. I had 11 black people out of over 100 podcasts that I've done. That is a small percentage. And in my mind, I justified it like. I don't know anyone else in our industry. There's just no black people in our industry. Well, lo and behold, when you actually start to dig around, you know, it didn't take long to find like, you know, 200 amazing people that are very talented and very well respected. And there actually turns out there's quite, quite a lot of black people in our industry. So it's like you all have to do your little part to actually be conscious about it and be proactive because if we want to stay in our bubbles, like nothing is going to change. So. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. It's important. It's important. Listen, you have so many other things that you've done. I'm like looking at the time and looking like we're not going to get to all this. So let's just hit on like a couple more yeah. things that I want to make sure we talk about. So you have mentioned sure. your first generation. You, uh, your parents are from Ghana. And part of what you've done in the last four years is take groups over to Ghana. So talk about that mm. and, and why you decided to do that and what, what the trip is. What does it consist of? Oh, wow. Um, I was just one of the, 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 the happiest things that I've done in my life. I don't even know if happiest is the word. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, I should say. I was, uh, when I was news anchor at, at WVON, they had this thing where they would take listeners on like some excursion to different parts of the world where the African diaspora was. So they would go to Brazil and go to where African people are in Brazil or black people are in Brazil. And they would go to all these places that a lot of folks might not know are you know, primarily black. You know, go to Cuba and talk to Africans in Cuba and give like a tour of those communities. And they said, wait a minute, we're going to Ghana this, this year in 2016 and our news anchor is Ghanaian. How come he's never led a journey? Like he should go. And so I said, well, I don't know if people are going to follow me across the world to Ghana, but I'd become, I didn't know this at the time, but even though I was just a news anchor and kind of like the sidekick to the morning and afternoon hosts, I'd become my own personality on the air. And 25 people had signed up to take this trip with me, which was the most that they'd had in years. Normally they'd cap out at 10. And so these listeners come with me and then we went on this soul searching journey almost to Africa so that African-Americans could see what it feels like to be in a space that is predominantly black where the billboards are black, where you don't have to walk around and wonder if you're being mistreated because this person is an a-hole or because of this color of your skin, you know, or, or uh, you know, we went to the, to the slave dungeons where we learned the story of the origins of the transatlantic slave trade. And this was before the 1619 project where most of the country had really begun to dig into what that was about. And so it, those journeys, I did them every year up until uh, 2019. And it was awkward because in my gut, I said, I'm not going to do this again in 2020. Didn't know a pandemic would happen, but I just felt like that season was finished. But over the course of four years, I'd taken about 70 people. And it was a journey that taught them more about themselves as people from the African diaspora, because, you know, being minorities in America make you feel like you're your perspectives and the way you feel and think are, are unique. And then you go to a land where no, the, the, the things that you feel, even though you don't know your ancestors, the way the drums make you feel, 
is, is part of just your, your lineage, your bloodline, the way, you know, the, the, the sense of pride you get in seeing all of this black entrepreneurship. Everyone in Africa is selling something. And so it was just it was just a, a super dope trip. And it, it taught me uh, it taught me how important it was for African-Americans to see themselves as part of the African diaspora. And then it also taught me more about how to tell stories because I'm working on a documentary about those trips. Um, been working on it for a long time. But um uh, hopefully, hopefully I get the chance to come back and hopefully folks pick it up and it, it does well. But I've been working for a few years on a documentary about that whole journey. So you're working on a documentary. You have the MTV show. You have your MTV news stuff. You have a show on the Smithsonian Channel. You have a multimedia company. I guess really <laughs> what I need to ask is, do you sleep? <laughs> I do not. There's no way. There's enough. no way you sleep. I don't sleep enough, but I get a lot of help. I get a lot of help. And I've learned that, uh, you know, the best, fo- as you know, the best folks in this business, it took me a while to learn it embarrassingly, but the folks that do well in this business don't try to become great at everything. They find people who are great at the things that they're great at and uh, that they're not good at. And, and I put those people in position. So, you know, that has helped me to manage a lot of stuff and relying on my producers not being and, and being really learning how I work and being very specific in what I need so that a two hour shoot, if I can get it done in an hour, then I can get on to this other project because I've told the pre-production team what it is I need that will help me to learn this as quick as possible so I can move on to the next thing. And so that helps. And those self-care routines like journaling that I've learned from hosting True Life Crime has helped me to not go crazy in the midst of shooting uh, all of these different projects. But but yeah, it does. It does. Mess up the dating life, Elisa. I ain't gonna lie to you. It does mess up the personal life, but but it's all worth it. <laughs> yeah, but you're still young. You got plenty. You got plenty of time for that later, right? Yeah, I, yeah. You, you strike me as the kind of guy who, in that journal or somewhere, you've got like your list of like 20 goals that you haven't even started on that you want to get done, right? In like the next five years, so you don't have to share them all. But give me like one or two that are like, I will do this in the next 10 years. Oh, let me see. I'm actually going to open the journal. You, you're funny. Hey, I knew you know, it. You, you knew me. It's, it's actually here. Yeah. I got a couple of things, man. I, I think one of the things I want to want to have accomplished um, in the next five or 10 years is I want to create a pipeline of talent who has my same sensibilities. Uh, because when I left Chicago um, and I had to begin turning down maybe speaking engagements or you know, maybe short, limited podcast runs that I wasn't able to do because of time or, you know, monetarily, maybe it didn't make sense. I didn't have many people who I could reach out to to give those opportunities to. I have a lot of mentees, but they weren't all ready in the way that I was ready at that time. Or I haven't had a chance to meet those people. And so within the next five or 10 years, I want to have a stronger pipeline to diverse talent who have a diverse array of interests. And I want to create a space where you can be a journalist who can cover crime with the same passion with which you cover social justice, with the same way that you cover hip-hop albums. And, you know, I've interviewed everybody from Billie Eilish to Lil Durk. And, you know, there was a world where a lot of Black folks would get hired to be the hip-hop guy. Or a lot of hard-nosed journalists would only be able to stay in that space. And then I talk to them off camera and we listen to the same music. We go to the barbershop and we have. And so I, I want to create a world where journalists have the bandwidth 
to explore the full range of their capabilities and their interests. And I want to have a, a pipeline of folks so I can, you know, those opportunities that I can't do, I can say, hey, my little brother over there is just, just as talented as me. Give him that job. So hopefully that happens. I love that. So you're basically proposing a management firm, essentially. That's what I'm working this into. You're going to just be like the top dog sitting at the top. You're going to figure it all out. You're just counting your money. I like it. Oh, my Lord. That's the goal. I like That's it. the goal. I like it. I like your vision. Okay, so tell everyone, um, I should say before you tell us your, your social media stuff, that everybody can watch the entire season of the MTV show online. Um, so tell us. Uh, yeah. the, the website is at mtv.com and then true life crime. Yes. Um, and then all the episodes are there for free. So tell us where we can find you and follow you on social media. Yes. Follow me at Domiti, D-O-M-E-T-I underscore Domiti underscore because someone else has my name. <laughs> but uh, follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Domiti underscore. Same with Facebook, Domiti Pongo. And uh, my website is being redesigned right now, but the there's some cool stuff up there now, domatee.net or domateepongo.com. And um, yeah, definitely check out the show as well with the Smithsonian um, Conversations and Context. Um, that link is up on, uh, on my social media. Just hit the link in my bio and uh, you'll see all that cool stuff. Well, thank you so much. It was so great to meet you. And again, I'm very honored that you, that you came on. And this was a really fun, interesting conversation. So thanks again. Oh, this is one of the best conversations I've had about the business in a very long time. And I'm um, very appreciative of Aunt Karen and you, Aliza, for uh, <laughs> taking the time uh, to talk to me because, uh, you know, you don't get to talk shop a lot. So I appreciate the show. I love the show and I appreciate having been a guest on here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 